My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I'm the co-host of this show and I am joined as always by the other co-host of this show. What is your name, sir? Mr. Eric David Vespi. Mr. Very fancy. Very fancy. Trying to dress it up a little bit for our for our guest today. That's right. That's that's fine. Uh, I have a guest in from from out of town, all the way from New Zealand. Uh, you know him as the dryly funny Kiwi journalist turned director behind the darkly hilarious 2016 documentary Tickled, as well as the host of Netflix's You Gotta See It to Believe It docu-series Dark Tourist, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Farrier. How are you doing? Hi, it's so nice. It's so nice to be joining you from beautiful Auckland here in New Zealand. It's very cold. We're down to about three COVID-19 cases, um, but it's, nice. Yeah, it's nice to be here with you guys to talk um, Stephen King. Yes, and you have brought us a um, a very unfortunate King adaptation today. Uh, I, what I, I, I believe might be the, <laughs> the, the, the worst one, maybe. We are well. You tell them, David. You you do the honors. You you brought it. Yeah. Place. Well, I I have uh, brought to the table the Tommy Knockers, uh, <laughs> which you know is something that it's a novel I'm very familiar with, and something I'm particularly passionate about because they uh, they made the miniseries. They shot it here in New Zealand, where I'm from. Actually, not that far from where I'm sitting right now. I could probably drive about. 20 minutes from here and I'd be where they shot the Tommy knockers. So I want to rep New Zealand. Um, I want to, you know, I want to give a shout out to this book that, you know, it's not Stephen King's best, but I think <laughs> it came at a really interesting point in his career. Yeah. Yes. Not, not the greatest. And <laughs> I strangely, I know the kid that played Davy Brown who got abducted uh, onto the Tommy knockers ship you know, and now he, he's this, you know, wonderful um, adult man who's got this weird memory of acting in one of the worst Stephen King um, <laughs> adaptations of all time. <laughs> this is, um, well, we're going to talk about, you, you've you sent us a, a number of photos that you're, you belong to your friend from the Tommy Knocker set. And I'd like to walk through some of those with you because they are uh, magical, I think is the only other, only possible word for them. But before we get to that, very quickly, I want to talk about your Stephen King origin story. Uh, how did you start reading King? What are your favorites? You know, first movie you saw? So, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, one of the first um, sort of visual things I saw was the miniseries. I probably watched the Tommy Knockers um, growing up because it was played here in New Zealand. Um, and that was before I really knew who Stephen King even was. Um, I was pretty late to the table. Um, I grew up in a fairly... Um, conservative Christian house. Um, I was pretty mega Christian and I did all those stereotypical Christian things of avoiding horror. Um, And so I was really late to the table uh, and my entry was the Dark Tower, um, which is, I don't think it's that much of a common way that people got into King, but I just devoured that stuff so quickly. I think probably the drawing of the three in the wastelands are probably my two favorite Stephen King books, just because I was just so, I mean, I was just so tapped into that world he'd created and I was devouring King at the time. 
Did you start reading Dark Tower once it was finished? Or was he still writing them when you started reading it? No, and that's a brilliant thing. There were still um there was still the last two books to come. So that was that was a really great position to be in because I remember no, maybe it was just the last one. No, it would have been the it would have been the Dark Tower. That was the only one that hadn't been released and Song of Susanna. Oh man. Um I think. No, wait. What was the one that came out as like a bonus later? Win through the keyhole. Win through the keyhole. Sorry, win through the keyhole. Um, so yeah, when when the Dark Tower was finally released at finale, I that was just the most exciting time, and I can only imagine what it would be like to be a little bit um, older and to have you know picked up all the all the books as they mm-hmm. came out. But having that last one drop was just such a huge moment, and God, I love that book as well. Well, well it wasn't not, totally not- awesome. Um, reading them <laughs> as they came out because there were often these insane long waits in between them, especially mm. between Wastelands and Wizard and Glass. And, and Wastelands has like the biggest cliffhanger in the entire <laughs> fucking series, you know? Like, right. how many years was that? Was it like six or seven years between those books? I, that, that, that was my experience with it because the first three were out when I read them. And, uh, uh, and much like David, like, I really like the gunslinger drawing of the three is the thing that like hooked me into that series so hard. And I was so excited that there was the other book on the shelf and I didn't, you know, when you're reading them, it's not like they, it said book two of seven or whatever. It's like you, you didn't know how many. And for all I knew, the third book was going to be, was the last one. And, uh, and I read the the third book and you're right. It ends on that cliffhanger with the, with our quartet on Blaine, the pain and the riddling train, and you're just like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And then just nothing. And what's even crazier is that, uh, not to make this whole thing about Dark Tower, but what's even crazier is that even amongst Stephen King fans, Dark Tower at that time wasn't highly read. It wasn't yeah. something that I could go talk to people about. And when I read this, this was pre-internet days. This would have been uh, 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Um I assume. Uh, and so there was nobody that I could talk to about this. Cause even the, hmm. like I had some teacher friends that, that uh, were recommending me Stephen King books. You know, I was that weird kid that like had a lot of adult friends, like, and, uh, and I made friends with my teachers and, and all that stuff. And there was like one teacher in particular um, who I think was like a history teacher or something, but he was a huge dark tower fan. So he was like the only person I could talk to about it. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean now, now dark tower is kind of this, it's still culty, but it's it's a widely read cult culty thing. Yeah, there's people. Well, there's people to talk to about it now. Right, <laughs> you're totally right. Yeah, like I, I had yeah, the which, same is a, which is a which is a good place to be, and it, it is nice meeting other Stephen King fans and that being a central reference point. But I guess from Dark Tower, I just went backwards, and I probably just did the things that a lot of people probably started on. You know, the stand and it, and pet symmetry, and all that stuff. And since then, I've kind of devoured up. Um, everything i mean standout films i mean like everyone i love stand by me um i would have watched the running man very early on actually probably before i knew it was a king thing yeah uh, and that well, was it's barely wild. a king thing yeah barely a king thing barely sort of an outlier thing. so yeah but um that brings us back to uh the best novel of all time the tommy knockers which <laughs> i eventually man. read knockers. probably towards the end of my stephen king binging and i've just reread it and man it is a struggle yeah mm. 
It is yeah, uh, six hundred pages of not very good. I, I had the very the same experience. I, I reread it for this podcast, and my experience reading it the first time. Uh, I, I was on this great kick from starting around sixth grade. I've mentioned this many times before on the podcast. People are going to get bored with it. But my first book was Cujo. And from there, I decided I was going to read everything King. And I hit all the greats, right? So I'm like, you know, Carrie, Shining, Salem's Lot, you know, mm. Christine. I'm mm. reading, you know, Night Shift and like all the, all the great books, The Stand, It. And then I hit, uh, then I get to Tommy Knockers and I hit it like a brick fucking wall. Like yeah, it, yeah. It, it really, I must have been early high school at that point. And like I, at the time I was like, what the fuck is this? Like I couldn't, I, it weirdly, I couldn't put it down because I challenged myself that I had to read everything that King had written. And, and uh, that's the only reason I, I finished it though, was because I felt like I would have been a failure to this little personal challenge I'd set up for myself in, in sixth grade. We have already done, um, I guess we can say this. Um, we've already done an episode on, uh, King's other major work of science fiction, uh, which is dream catcher. Tommy knockers represents the other major, you know, sci-fi effort from him. You know, he's usually horror or, you know, drama with elements of horror, whatever, you know, those are those, those two are both purely sci-fi. And I'm curious, David, if you have any theory um, as to why both, both of King's attempts to do, uh, you know, his, his version Mm -hmm. of a horror sci-fi novel have just really not worked um, outside of the drugs that were taking, you know, that he was doing while he wrote. (laughs) Do you have a theory? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, obviously, Tommy Knockers was peak kind of cocaine, and I think Dreamcatcher was when he was. Um, I think he was on a lot of painkillers for right. um, the accident he'd been in. But I don't know. I just don't think. I think he's one of those people that w- when it gets to aliens, it almost becomes too literal. It's almost too. What am I trying to say? Like he's so good when he's talking about sort of spiritual forces or dark forces when it comes to like a little green man who's Mm -hmm. on earth affecting things and doing things, it just suddenly becomes really, I don't know. It loses a lot of what makes Stephen King magic. I think when he ends up talking about aliens, these literal things from outer space, it just loses the scare factor. It becomes just weirdly domestic in a way. And I, and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because he's riffing off other properties in his brain that are going on and sort of with aliens that have been done before. Um, but yeah, when he touches aliens, it just becomes, I don't know. He, he, he loses the parts of his writing that I really love, which is where he's almost in this really esoteric space that I usually, um, that I usually fucking love. I would think that, you know, if the operating theory is that, you know, what makes King's horror work so well is his sense of humanity and being able to to put mm, us in that. Mm. And and it and and that's the Achilles heel that's preventing him from making aliens scary. I would think the opposite would be true. I would think that his inherent humanity would allow him to to see something that like something that is truly alien and not of this world, something that's devoid of all humanity. It seems like something he should be able to make scary very easily, but I guess not. The end of under the dome also counts. Right. Yeah, it does. I mean, I also find Stephen King, I kind of drift off from him a little bit when he starts talking about technology and when he's got people 
on the internet doing research or he's got people using <laughs> yeah. cell phones. I find that really unking-like as well. And that might just be a personal bugbear that I have. Um, but I kind of find that going into similar territory where I just kind of tap out. I wish he avoided yeah, he, those things. Yeah, he doesn't have a good batting average when it comes to alien-based horror <laughs> in his books. Uh, now, we have a bad habit of talking about these stories, like assuming everybody has read them or seen the miniseries. Uh, so so real quick, I want to just run the basic plot of the Tommyknockers, and it's it's essentially about the extremely uh, normal plot of the Tommy knockers, the extremely normal. Now I'm only going to give the setup because it is 600 pages of, of weird Coke field bullshit. Um, but you know, the, the basic setup is that there's a small town in Maine called Haven. It's like 20 something miles from Derry. It's another fictional King town. And a woman named Bobby, uh, she's a writer and she, of course, I don't think that King, uh, can write a book that's like longer than 150 pages and not have somebody be an author in there somewhere. Um, sure. And uh, but she uncovers, she trips over something in her uh, on her land in, in the woods on her land. And uh, she starts getting obsessed with it. It's something buried in the dirt. She, you know, starts digging it up and it, you know, of course we come to find out much later that that's the tip of an alien spaceship. Um, and as she does, as she uncovers it, the more she uncovers it, the more the townspeople start getting getting these crazy ideas about inventions and and things that are obviously beyond their means and beyond to to know and uh, understand. And uh, the only people who are immune to this uh, alien interference are people that have metal plates in their heads. <laughs> and there are quite a few people in this story that has a bunch of metal in their heads. For a surprising uh, for- number. Yeah, more than you would imagine. And so that that's the basic setup. Um the main character even though the the uh, Bobby who uncovers the the spaceship starts the story, she's not really the main character. It's more the uh um guard, her her sometimes lover, poet, drunk poet friend who comes and has a metal plate in his head. And even calling him the main character is weird, right? Because it's like he's kind of the the lead, but then the story will go off and in, into the townspeople for two hundred pages and not even return to them at all, and then until it comes back. So that that is the the basic like bare bones setup to this stuff, and we'll get into some some more granular de- details. But I think we want to get to those uh, making of photos pretty quick, right? Yes, I think we need to address those. My so my friend. Paul MacGyver um, is, you know, was Davy Brown, the the child in Tommy Knockers, and his sister is Rose MacGyver, who is an actor still. She um, is the lead in Eye Zombie, and she's in Lovely Bones, and she's still a working actor. Whereas Paul um, started as a child actor at a similar time to Rose, but didn't progress in the same way. And his well, once you do Tommy Knockers, it's one and done, right? So <laughs> exactly, that's how he feels about it. So his big, like the biggest thing he's been on was the Tommy Knockers, which was a really big set here in New Zealand. I mean, they essentially built um, built the town here in New Zealand because I think it was cheap to um, cheaper to shoot here, um, and probably no unions, and probably they could get away with a lot over here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I went round. I went round to visit Paul at his parents' house, and we just kind of talked over what this experience was like to be in Tommy Knockers. And they bought out their family photo album, 
And it was a perfectly normal album. It had, you know, Paul and Rose at the beach and, you know, going to school and all these normal sort of photos. And then you turn the page and suddenly there's a photo that just says, like, Spaceship 92. And it's just <laughs> a photo of the inside of the Tommy Knocker spaceship. And you're like, okay, this is taking a bit of a turn. And there are just all these photos that um, Paul's parents took on the set of the Tommy Knockers. My favorite one is probably a shot of a Tommy Knocker. Um, and it's just titled, you know how like on a family photo album, you can have a caption next to it. It just says a dead Tommy Knocker. Like it's the most <laughs> oh, normal yeah, thing I in the it. world. <laughs> <laughs> is the, is that picture, is it like hanging from a ceiling or is the fucking photo just like turned on its side? Yeah, they haven't done a good job, I think, organizing the family photo album. And I think the photo is just orientated in the wrong way. Okay, just making sure. Uh, Yeah, so that is sort of a Tommy knocker that's kind of sort of, um, well, it's very dead. Um, You can see some of the beautiful special effects work that went into this this particular (laughs) miniseries. Look, he has little Um, handles that he's holding on to. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. Uh, As you can say, it's an early uh, creature effect from Richard Taylor, who uh, would later go on to form Weta uh, and do all the Lord of the Rings movies and all of Peter Jackson stuff. But this was a very early somewhere, right? You got to start somewhere. Before we we uh, we go through all of them, I just wanted to say that uh, you have graciously given us uh, permission to post these publicly, right? So you don't have to just listen to this and picture these in your mind's eye. And believe me that we're going to get to one that you don't want to just picture in your mind's eye here in a second. Uh, but if you want to see them, we're going to put them out well, on our uh, podcast, Twitter, uh, which is at Kingcast 19. Yes. So, so there's yeah, that. So these Continue are on. before seen photos from the, uh, yeah, from the set of the Tommy knockers, which I'm sure yet, everyone is absolutely gagging for <laughs> yet another Kingcast exclusive. Yeah. The other thing that I quite like that these photos show is Paul, um, in his makeup, as as I guess he's been, obviously he's been teleported to the Tommy Knocker ship. Um, obviously mm-hmm. in the book, the, the everyone is teleported to um, to the planet, the alien planet, but they made a change in the miniseries where they're all put onto the alien ship, which is on Earth. But the thing is, they didn't really have much of a budget for special effects, so the townsfolk sort of no. turning into Tommy Knockers. It was mostly just like making their faces quite white. Yeah, and pale and making their eyes look really um, shadowed and kind of sunken in. So I think what this photo I'm looking at now of little Paul MacGyver is that it really shows how basic um, the special effects <laughs> were in the makeup that they were working with. Like, you know, th- this this miniseries was apparently budgeted in a similar way to it. And, and it, the miniseries, well, I think was a lot more impressive. And Tommy Knockers just feels so cheap cheaply made is that is that a fair comment yeah how oh, can yeah. that be possible the same budget fucking hell it's really really unusual and i think these photos i mean set photos never really do a set justice but uh these ones just make it look particularly cheap i think <laughs> there's um john power yeah that's the director so there's, this this one's a picture of oh the jeff the sound man and john John Power, the director. John Power was a Australian journalist, wasn't he? Turned filmmaker. Yeah, journalist turned filmmaker. He had done um, he had done a bit of work before this, and I don't know. I think he was brought in late onto this, right? He replaced someone else. He did. Yeah, Lewis Teague was the original director on this, and he shot for a couple ah. of days. 
Louis Teague, of course, has made some great genre B movie uh, stuff. He did uh, uh, Alligator, which is fucking rad. If you haven't yeah, never yeah. seen it, um, and uh, it's like the best of all the Jaws ripoffs. And there's a surprising amount of Jaws ripoffs. Um, but he also has been uh, has has had a quite a few entries into the Stephen King adaptation world. He also did Cat's Eye. He did Cujo. Um, and Cujo in particular is one that I think is a, a fairly strong adaptation. So why did he leave this uh, production? Do we know? Well, I mean, based on the little th- little stuff I could uncover from interviews, the the production was very rushed. It's probably why it was so a, a lot of it looked so cheap. It was one of those things where they gave it a uh, a premiere date since this was a miniseries and they needed to hit it. And one of the reasons why they had to shoot in New Zealand, besides the cost saving of of um, uh, you know, of just the American dollar being worth more in New Zealand at the time was the fact that uh, New Zealand's in the Southern Hemisphere and they were having a summer when we were having a winter and it needed to be summer in the series and they had to shoot it so fast that they couldn't wait for summer to roll around in the state. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so they, they just had to do it quickly. And my understanding is that like after two days, like Louis Teague was all, already behind on production and he just got booted from for going too slow. <laughs> I think Louis Teague got on set and saw what the Tommyknockers look like and said, fuck <laughs> this, I'm out of here. <laughs> no, one thing I was surprised about um, just talking to, um, to Paul and his parents who were on set every day, they didn't get the idea at the time that it was terribly cheap and terrible. I mean, you had actors like Jimmy Schmitz there who were, you know, they were charismatic, good actors, but they said like the set didn't seem as bad as it turned out. And they kind of put it all down to the editing process and things just falling apart when they ran out of money. And obviously I guess they couldn't see how it was being shot in the style, but they just said like turning up, it was pretty impressive. You know, they'd got this whole town there. Um, it looked incredibly, um, you know, it looked good when they were walking around the town they had some great, like, you know, wind effects and stuff in the forest, and they were all really impressed with the whole thing. But um, for your Paul's dad reckoned it was uh, the edit where it all went haywire, and the story he, he had was that that he noticed was that when um, Jimmy Schmidt's character was having the fight with the Tommy Knocker at the end, um, they'd just like yell pause, and someone would run on and spray a bit more blood on Jimmy Schmitz's shirt to make the blood stain bigger, and then they'd fight again, and then they'd pause and put more blood on. So this blood stain was just expanding during the fight. But then when you watch the Tommy Knockers, they edited it all out of order. So Jimmy Schmitz's blood stain is just like ballooning in and out, like willy nilly all over the place. <laughs> and they kind of said that's kind of a metaphor for like where it all went bad. They reckon it was like the edit is where it all went totally, um, you know, totally to custard. Right. I well, think, to be um, fair, they, they they also were working off of uh, a very hard to adapt or make make great, uh, very hard to make great story. There is uh, one other photo here. I think we need to address looking at these. <laughs> this is my um, favorite. If, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if if I could direct your attention to exhibit T09-PNG. David, what are we looking at here exactly? Exactly. This, this is Paul MacGyver's last day on set. It's the wrap day. He had worked a lot of long nights. They were shooting till three in the morning. Um <laughs> <laughs> at one, one, I think the night before this, Paul said he was spewing in his trailer at about three in the morning just from exhaustion. Like they really did work some of these kids pretty hard shooting late at night. So this is wrap day. It's a victorious time. They've wrapped this big, majestic miniseries. 
And we see a photo <laughs> of Paul MacGyver um, being presented with a present from Jimmy Schmitz. Um, but not only is Jimmy Schmitz presenting Paul with a present, he's also landing a big old Jimmy Schmitz kiss on what appears to be Paul's near the lips, isn't it? It looks you know, to be a half and half. He's getting half of like the corner of his mouth and half of his cheek I'm gonna with a big old macaroni. I would oh, like to the- draw attention as well to the caption um, that Paul's mother has written um, completely unironically on this photo, which just says, a kiss from Jimmy. <laughs> it most certainly is. You can <laughs> practically, you can almost hear someone calling Child Protective Services in the background of this photo <laughs> as you look at but it. They, they also made it very clear that Jimmy was just like the nicest guy on set. He just wanted to make everyone feel good. And I think he got him a chemistry set. Um, which Paul? Oh, that's um, what's in that box. Really loved using. Um, so, but, but the photo—it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Uh, the imagery—it it doesn't leave the brain, does it? It's um, I can't. <laughs> I it's can't tell if it's Jimmy. the angle. It's a kiss from Jimmy, isn't it? <laughs> it is a kiss. It's it's most certainly a kiss from Jimmy. I, I don't think we can dispute that. Um, I think the I think the angle of the photo perhaps makes it look. Worse than I've zoomed in on it, which was a mistake. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, yeah, he, you're on a list now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone's knocking on my door. Hold on. Um, the other thing that makes it so good is that Jimmy Schmitz is very tanned, and Paul still has his Tommy Knocker <laughs> makeup on, so he looks like he's been kept in a dungeon for like the last year and a half. <laughs> it looks like Jimmy Schmitz is trying to make out with a dead kid. Is what it looks like. <laughs> Um, I'm glad we, I'm, I'm glad that that was a chemistry set in the box. And when I was, when I was having dinner with him, I was trying to get, you know, stories of, of madness and craziness from the set. But apart from like the insanely late nights, they kind of had a good time and they all thought the Tommy knockers was going to be, the movie was going to be kind of fine, you know? So I think it kind of took everyone by surprise that was, that was in the cast or at least the New Zealand side of things. I would think that in most cases, um, you don't know, do you? Yeah, you don't know, okay. or you at least have a good feeling. You know, I, I would think uh, I, I've, I've been on a number of film sets, uh, um, many of them for very shitty movies. Uh, at no point did I ever speak to anyone on those sets who was like, "Oh, we're making a real piece of shit here." Uh, this is just <laughs> yeah. uh, people are not going to like this one. I'll tell you what; like everyone's always very upbeat, and the mood is always. Uh, you know, hopeful and, mm. and, and fun. Uh, and I would imagine like if, you know, it, it must've been very unusual for basically Hollywood to come to, come to town at that time and bring in the Jimmy Smiths with his green packages and, and kisses to, uh, to, you know, romance the town, you know, I'm sure that they were all very charmed. It's an unusual yeah, experience. Were, I mean, I most, most people don't ever set the first time. If you, if you ever go to like an actual film set it blows your fucking mind. Like it's, it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. And then like by the third time you're like, man, there's a lot of people just standing around, not really doing anything. This seems kind of wasteful. And by like the fifth or sixth time you've done it, you're like, all right, where's craft services and where's the bathroom. I just need to know like what I'm going to be like wandering between while they're setting up these shots for the next three hours. It's kind of boring. I mean, the thing I think the thing I find really funny about this is that, you know, you've got these two siblings and, you know, one of them 
his biggest role um, is in the Tommyknockers, and he's a really good actor, and he and he still does some acting and does theatre, and he's really talented, but it's just been very funny because, you know, his sister Rose has just gone and had this career in Hollywood, and when you start comparing, like, where the roads diverged, it probably was kind of around Tommyknockers time, and that's just, like, incredibly funny, I think, for everyone. Like, it's just such a good (laughs) um, divergent career, like, where you're, you know, both your kids are are acting. It's just, it's. I love it. I love it so much. What does your buddy Paul do now? He works for a um, a brewery, I believe. I think he's still there. Oh, that's he's cool. got a family. They're wonderful family. Um, still acts in theatre. He's a really good musician. But yeah, he's a dad here in New Zealand, and Rose is off in Hollywood. And Paul will often do Facebook status updates every time Rose has a premiere or a new thing, and he'll be like. Yeah, here's Rose on the red carpet. She's just been in this film. And this was my day. Like, one of my kids broke their arm, and I had to take them to A&E. <laughs> you know? So he's got, like, a really good sense of humor about, like, their lives diverging in very different ways. It's very funny. Well, um, we will definitely post these photos onto Twitter once uh, once this episode goes live. So I think, uh, I think people are going to be very excited. Yeah, I mean, I've told Paul that he and his whole family, he needs to do like a little behind the scenes of Tommyknockers. I mean, I think that would, um, yeah, that little book would uh, find a find an, uh, quite a wide audience, wouldn't it? Surely. <laughs> There's got to be some sort of something you could do with this. You know, uh, turn it into the authorities would be one thing you could do. Let's go back to the, uh, let's go back to the novel before we really tune up on this fucking thing. Oh, do we have to? <laughs> Is there anything you guys like about this book? Like, let's talk positives. What do you got? There's a section of the book where they get into the vignettes in the town. And even though it doesn't, like, help the overall story at all, that's the stuff that feels the most vintage King to me. Because what happens is you're you're getting all these stories of of the townspeople as they're being affected by the alien energy coming off of the ship. Uh Um, And you get all these little mini stories that are kind of like a series of short stories, including the... The one with uh, the the two young brothers uh, where, you know, one of them builds a thing to do a magic trick and disappears objects. And then he ends up disappearing his little brother, but he can't bring his brother back. And it turns out he disappeared him to a, a, a Altair 4. Is that right? I, I seem to remember. Four. Altair yeah, 4. That's, he disappears that's into my a, favorite thing in the fucking book. Easy. Yeah, another planet. And like the way that it's he describes that because like he describes being able to like briefly see his brother like you know, a little six-year-old kid, you know, grabbing at his throat because he can't breathe in the in the atmosphere. And like that, that's like the most Lovecraftian weirdness um, uh, in the book in the, which, which was a novel that was inspired by Lovecraft. It's inspired very blatantly uh, by uh, color out of space, which is Lovecraft story about something alien and, you know, infecting a town and, you know, or I guess a farm in that case, but, uh, but King takes it up to another, another level, but there's that. And then there's like the, the lady who finds out her husband's been cheating on her. And, and uh, in the book, she's told by a, a portrait of Jesus on her wall. And, uh, and it's the, really the aliens talking to her through Jesus, but like is, you know, so it's kind of funny because you have Jesus, you know, telling this religious woman to go kill her husband for, for cheating on her and to build this contraption that, you know, into the remote control to uh, electrocute him and, and kill him on the spot. You know, there's there's a bunch of those little things in uh, that section that are just like short, sweet. You know, they're they're almost like little mini Twilight Zone episodes in the middle of of this. You know, or little Tales from the Crypt episodes. These darkly funny things. Um, but unfortunately, the main story of 
of Bobby and guard uncovering this, uh, you know, giant spaceship is, it's just fucking dull, man. Like it's really on the reread. It's so hard to get through and the characters are painted well, but they're just boring and unlikable and things are just dick and they're, they're all assholes. Yeah. David, what do you like about this book? Anything? Look, I I agree with what you said. (laughs) I I think some, I, I really liked how it went. You know, he just, you know, um, Hilly did disappear his little brother off to another planet. I thought that was kind of epic and terrifying. Um, I know in the miniseries, they kind of dumped the idea of the planet and, and Davey just ended up on uh, in the ship on earth. Um, I like some of the relationships between the characters. Like I, I like some of, you know, I think Stephen King is really good at writing sort of these really sort of pedestrian conversations with people and getting a feeling for who they are. And, I liked elements of that, but it was all just, it was too long. Um, there was so much stuff here that could have been cut out of this book. And I, I don't know, I don't know where the editor was for this, but okay. just, I'd say everything was just too long. It just needed to be, um, it just needed to be chopped the hell back. My theory is that at this point in his career, he had almost worked beyond the, beyond an editor, you mm. know? If he slams down a 600 page manuscript and is like, this is the next one, you know, that there was probably very little fucking around about that. And if he was, according to legend, just coked out of his gourd the, the, during this period of his life, might have been the last person you'd want to try to negotiate with. Might be easier <laughs> just to print the whole goddamn thing. Maybe. Of course, this Maybe also I- like feeds in my other theory is that after I feel like after his accident, he also got a bit of a pass in terms of an editor. Which is how you end up with Dreamcatcher, which is why you end up with, I, I I will get yelled at for saying this, but I think those last three Dark Tower books should have been consolidated into two. Um, there's quite a bit of that going on in, you know, the after the, the van accident thing, where I, I feel like um, he was given a pass. The other thing I did like about this book is that I, I kind of liked how relentlessly bleak it got. And, mm. you know, a lot of people die towards the end. And I don't know, I was sort of into that. Um, I was into how big everything got and certain people that died. And just the fact that like a lot of the town got really messed up in those last few pages, you know, in the shop and the FBI and everything descend on things. You kind of just hear what happens to these people in the aftermath. I really liked I enjoyed like those last 10 pages quite a bit. And I don't know if that's just this bleak mood I'm in at the moment, but I enjoyed those on the reread. It sounds to me like you're saying that you really liked it when it, when it was finally over. <laughs> that as well. There's the fact, you know, you're down to the last 10 and you never have to revisit this book. <laughs> Unless you're doing a podcast about it. Unless um, you're doing a podcast. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say there's one other thing uh, that I, I didn't react to it as much as I did when I was a kid, but like the thing that I remembered the most from this, from my first reading of it, the, that terrible, like freshman, sophomore in high school reading the one where I was like, just, just through like sheer will getting through it because I didn't want one of his books to beat me, um, was the tie in to, uh, it, and the so you have the mentions of dairy, and then there's this section where two of the alien possessed uh, like high school kids go into dairy to to get batteries because everything 
that these people invent need batteries to run. Uh, and they, so the whole town runs out of batteries. So there's this whole section where they send these two high school kids to, to the neighboring town, Derry, to pick up more batteries. And they find, uh, and there's like a mention of, of one of them seeing a clown in the, in the sewer and, uh, and the sewer grate, like looking at him. And I remember as a kid, uh, you know, this is before shared universes was a thing. This is really before the dark tower was really getting into the whole meta mm. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, when I read this, and so it blew my mind that I could read this and have a as blatant of a connection to an, like my favorite of the king the king books I'd read up to that point. You know, which also, of course, Pennywise had been killed. You know, Pennywise was supposed to be dead, and here, you know, there's this mention, you know, a couple of years later of of, uh, of Pennywise being seen in the sewer. Yeah, you what know, the fuck? So, or, yeah, so, I mean, it doesn't make any goddamn sense, but, like, as a kid, I remembered going, like, oh, my God, and that was, like, the bright spot, and that's the thing that stuck in my mind the entire, um, the re- all the way through the rest of my, you know, adulthood, you know, because I w- wasn't ever planning on revisiting this book, but I remembered that scene, and I remember that sequence. Rereading it now, it, it feels a little... Like, hey, remember this other thing that's better? Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, but as a kid, that certainly that certainly affected me. I have two thoughts in response to that. First is that if the alien-controlled kid went to Derry and saw the clown, that indicates that aliens are susceptible to Pennywise's powers. I have nothing further to add to that. I just think it's interesting. And two... Say Pennywise himself what? is an alien. Well, yeah, he's like a celestial... Well, yeah, he's like, you know, I know he's a a thing, but like if he's feeding <laughs> on fear, why would it appear as a clown to an alien intelligence? Unless it can't read that it's an alien. You know, there's a weird thing going on there. They're both aliens, technically. That's Well, I mean, the, at this point, the kid the, is still partially, it's still the body and the mind of the kid. It's just being slowly taken over. Just being kid, it's not like, yeah, strongly. Yeah, it's not like a possession where suddenly it's a whole different personality in there. You know, all it's doing is it's like slowly changing. Okay. They're a base personality of, of the people. I should note that I did not reread this book because I have enough problems going on in my life and don't hate myself <laughs> that much. Lucky so motherfucker. I, yeah, I skipped this one. But um and my my uh second thought on this is just building off what you said about, you know, this was your first time discovering that there was like sort of a shared Stephen King universe going on. That happened to me on Insomnia. Like three quarters of the way th- through the book. It's actually in the third act, I think. There's like two or three pages that are explicitly about Dark Tower shit. And I just, right. yeah. you know, I was like 10 or 11 years old. I just fucking lost my mind. And I went like running into the other room to t- tell my mother about it. And she she has no fucking idea what I'm talking about. It was like, yeah, there's like, like she was perplexed. I, re- I remember that. That was an exciting moment, though, when you start to see like that he's 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 connecting things and. And it was such, I mean, that was such a big connection that was so overblown and it was so intense and it wasn't just this passing little reference that was so tied into the, into what that book was all about. And I I had the same thrill as you reading Insomnia. That was, and I had no idea it was coming. No, none at all. There's no indication. It's like, it's Dark Tower related. And then of course, (laughs) you know, they brought that character back for the, well, spoilers for the Dark Tower, uh, for the final Dark Tower book and not in an entirely, um, successful way um no. but yeah rough stuff hey, let's only criticize um, one book this episode okay <laughs> yeah good <laughs> good call fuck where uh, were we i do think we should talk about uh the idea and well the the powers that the tommy knockers bestow on the townspeople 
the, this, in, this uh, inflated sense of intelligence and is, is sort of a metaphor for, um, for drug addiction and specifically cocaine. What do y'all think about that? Uh, true. <laughs> I, um, yeah, not, not very true. I mean, the, the thing, the thing that I find, I think uh, that makes a Tommy is almost worthwhile is just when you're, you know, when you look at Stephen King's career as a whole, it is such a turning point because it's him maxing out on drugs and him sort of, you know, I think his wife stepped in and was like, you need to get help. And he went and got help. And that obviously those themes all bleed through into the characters in the book, which is, I don't know, is it for good or is it for bad? I mean, the book didn't turn out well, but is the fact that the townsfolk are all getting um, gifted this, this and, and infected with this like alien knowledge. Is that, I mean, is that a story point that, that, that works? Do you think? I don't, I don't even know, to be honest, I feel so dazed after rereading this. It's like almost hard to talk about. Uh, it, it works in, in in a way, but like, I don't know. My, my takeaway from it is when King puts his head on straight, he tackles this almost exactly. Um, this is the exact same setup in needful things um, where it's a small town. There's an evil in the town right. that's slowly infecting and making everybody else worse. Right. And bringing out the worst in everybody around him. And that to me is the more successful version of this structure and so there's no reason on earth why i would ever recommend somebody read tommy knockers that instead of reading needful things you know if like if you wanted to have that version of the story needful things is the much better read it's funny you say that because um i was thinking as you were talking about the uh you know the sort of interlude where the character is talking to jesus in the in the uh, <laughs> portrait on her on her tv always reminded me of the character in needful things who gets the, the Elvis glasses. And when she puts them on, she's like fucking Elvis, you know, Uh something about those two things. They're not exactly the same thing. Um, but there's something very similar about them to me. Yeah. Um, they're cousins for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not the characters, the books, but we can say Jesus Jesus and Elvis were related. That's, that's a known (laughs) fact. I think something, something about this book that I that did, and I don't mean to jump back into negatives all the time, but I found <laughs> the, whole, the whole scenario of like where they're inventing and they have to get the batteries and all these inventions they're making and the, you know, the thing that sorts the mail in the post office. I just found it kind of silly and the silliness took away from any scare factor I was ever meant to feel. And, you know, I said earlier, the book is like incredibly dour at times and incredibly bleak. But I think the silliness of the inventions and what they're doing, I don't know if you had the same reaction, but I found it like incredibly hard to take this book seriously in certain parts where the townsfolk are just inventing all this shit. And I think that translated even worse into the miniseries where the invention seemed even sillier when you actually got to see them in action and played out in front of you. Did, did you feel the same way? Uh, yeah, the, I don't know the the silly inventions for sure take away from the the scares. Like the only one that I I can even think of now that is um, at all effective is that that disappearing device that that Hilly makes that disappears his brother. Like, and even that is just what it does, not because it's like super crazy, you know, threatening or whatever. But just the way he describes it feels like a great dark, creepy, like cosmic crazy thing that this kid shouldn't have been able to piece together with household, you know, components. 
It's the most uh, overtly Lovecraftian thing in it. It's also the best idea in it. Right. This should have been a novella that was sort of built around that as a set piece, plus, you know, the finding of a, a UFO out in the woods. You know, the other the other 500 page of the pages of this could could probably go. Um, <laughs> yeah. Was was the uh, the laser lipstick that Tracy Lords has in the miniseries? Was that in the book? Uh, nope. <laughs> Invented whole cloth. Yeah. Well, maybe she came up with that. Have, on set. When you have Tracy Lords, you, you can't. You can't just uh, have her invent something that sorts mail. You have to give her something <laughs> weirdly sensual <laughs> to yes. uh, kill people with. I suppose we should be happy that it was laser lipstick and not something more <laughs> right. unseemly. Um, which which kind of brings us to the 1993 miniseries. Tracy Lords does, in fact, play a character on this, which is, you know, for some of our, our younger listeners, Tracy Lords was uh, an adult film actress whose claim to fame was that she starred in a number of movies while she was underage. Pretty fucking wild that they had her playing a, a decently sized role on an ABC miniseries. I can't imagine yeah. something like that happening today. I mean, it, it, may, it makes sense that like John Waters would, would hire her, right? Sure. sure. You know, because she, she's in Crybaby and she's, you know, she, that makes sense. But you're right, like doing a, a an all family, you know, miniseries. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. bizarre casting. It's far from the most bizarre thing in the miniseries, though. The thing that makes this whole thing worth watching to me is is uh, the scene where uh, Bobby takes her dog to the vet. And, <laughs> oh, and the oh my God, this, <laughs> yeah. like to me, like that 30 second, like if that was the rest of the, the series, it would have been my favorite, you know, King adaptation of all time. But what's not so in, in the in the story, you know, the dog gets part of the alien business on him right so he becomes a little aggressive and his cataract is healing he's an old dog he starts looking younger and so she takes him to the vet and in the book you know he kind of is just gets aggressive and causes the other animals to freak out and the other animals being like dogs and cats um in the miniseries for some unknowable reason they decided to put every animal in the zoo in the waiting room of the vet's office, there's like a dude with the giant owl on his arm. There's a fucking kid with a Gila monster. There's uh, there's somebody where that has a, a, a Cobra. It's like the most <laughs> insane thing. What vet in the world would you find that in the waiting room? And like that little glimpse of insanity and batshit craziness. If, if that was what the tone of the entire miniseries was, it would be it would be classic, but you know it'd be like David Lynchy and Twin Peaks nuts. But the, unfortunately, that's like an outlier. But that is, is my by far my favorite part of the. I think the it's I, I, my theory on that is that when they were you know setting this up, they went to whoever the animal wrangler guy is in New Zealand. Um, I can't imagine there were many of those kind of guys at this time. We've got one. We've got one. Yeah, still, still just the one. Yeah. Okay, is it the same guy from from ninety three? Do you think it probably it probably is it probably him is. and his cobra and his Gila monster? And, okay, and so owl. so I think they build the fucking town. They get everyone there, and they're like, "All right, animal wrangler guy, we need you to bring us. We're gonna need some cats, some dogs, like you know the shit you would see in a veterinarian's office." And the guy's like, "Well, um, <laughs> I've got." One of everything, like sort of he, a halfway Noah's Ark. Noah. 
Yeah, 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 exactly. And so that's, you know, he's got one snake, he's got a mouse, he's got a, a cat, he's got a dog, you know, but like not, you know, what they really needed to make a realistic uh, veterinarian's office. That's my, that's my theory with that scene. And you're right. It's the one time that the, the movie, like it came to life, that miniseries for all of a sudden it was vibrant and it was deeply weird and felt even like the camera moves felt inspired. And, but it was just for that brief little glimpse, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm going to have to assume that that is the two days that uh, Lewis Teague shot and that all the rest is that <laughs> that old Australian. Dude we'll give him credit it. for that. Yeah. 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 My shining light, I think, from the miniseries was Tracy Lord's <laughs> lipstick um, weapon that she used where she yeah. started shooting laser beams out of her lipstick. I thought that was pretty inspired, pretty weird and pretty silly. And I really liked it. I think that's my equivalent of the vet scene um, for you. Right. I like that scene, but it's just so, it's so awful. It looks <laughs> when she, when she does the laser thing with the lipstick, I, I would imagine this miniseries is not read, readily available. I had to, I had to buy this, uh, like a DVD copy of it off of, of Amazon to see it again. You, it's not streaming anywhere. And I wonder why haven't the people demanded it? I think I, I they're probably trying to cover it up. I had not seen this since it aired, so I hadn't seen it since I was ten or eleven years old. Ooh, and um, yeah. it it's not that it just doesn't hold up. It's it, it, just knowing the the quality. This movie, this fucking miniseries, was made a year before like Pulp Fiction. You know, like <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Like, there's right. no excuse for for whatever happened here. You know, things. Things went off off uh, off the rails to a, a degree that is unusual, even for a cheaply made miniseries. And, yeah, and even the spaceship, even as something as simple as like a half buried spaceship that was poking out of the ground. When, you know, when Bobby first trips over it, when she's in the bush with her dog, it's like she's tripped over like a tin can or something. It looks right. so dumb. And then for some reason... You know, in the book, the whole, the, the ship is, you know, it's a disc. It's an alien flying saucer, essentially. And for some reason, in the miniseries, they they chose to make it this boxy, weird thing. So when they dig it up, it's like they're digging up an old fridge or something, you know? It yeah. just looks so dumb. And it's like, why are you making these creative decisions that are kind of shooting yourself in the foot, where even the, the simple, practical things just look so friggin' terrible? It looks like yeah. if... um. David, I don't know if you have Nickelodeon in. We have Nickelodeon here. It's okay. Reach New Zealand. <laughs> okay. Um, it <laughs> no, looks like last year, if, Nick, if Nickelodeon. Oh, yeah, last month. <laughs> if Nickelodeon made a game show in the early 90s and the set was supposed to be futuristic, you know, like I'm imagining around the time Guts was a thing, you know, if you remember what that was. Um, and then they took that set and then they buried it in the fucking woods. That's what it looks like. <laughs> You know, it's all boxy and like kind of futuristic looking, but mostly it's just squares and like raised platforms and shit. It's um, it's really awful. There's stuff in the novel that I find redeeming. There's quite literally uh, nothing about the series to recommend. I don't think, and and especially not at three hours. There's there's no reason for anyone to see this. I have I no. Mean, I, mean, I disagree. Have... I'm going to politely disagree. I think I think the last. 10 minutes of the miniseries are kind of a bit invigorating when, you know, when, <laughs> invigorating. The Tommyknockers, 
Look, when the Tommy knock, when you're two hours, 15 minutes through this thing, there's a glimpse when, you know, when the Tommy knockers um, are alive in the ship and they're fighting Jimmy Schmitz and you see the aliens and sure, it's not great, but it's a little bit interesting. And that was obviously like a big creative decision they made because in the book, the Tommy knockers were long dead um, and they were converting the townsfolk to, to the aliens. Whereas in the miniseries, you know, the, the, the townsfolk were kind of getting sick and their teeth were falling out, but the aliens themselves, the Tommy knockers were like very much alive. And I think they look kind of cool. Uh-huh. You know, then you know what when I you think? compare it with the rest of it, they were kind of cool. Yeah, what that's Stockholm think? syndrome. That's Stockholm syndrome talking. <laughs> Damn it. You you I sat mean, through you two right. hours. You sat through 170 minutes of this shit, and then it showed you something that was vaguely kind of okay. And you're like, yes, this is this is. There, there's no way. Like, if I just showed you the last 10 minutes of this thing, context free, you'd be like, what? What is this garbage? Like, it's yeah, just. I think you're probably completely right. And and isn't it bizarre? Isn't it bizarre that those last 10 minutes are the only time they kind of put any kind of effort in and they're still bad for real. Yeah. And no, I think it, it's very possible. You just got, um, you know how the men in black have the uh, memory eraser flash. Yeah. You, you, I think as a kid, you probably got the Jimmy Smith's half mouth kiss. Uh, <laughs> oh, <and no>. memory <laughs> eraser. I got a kiss from Jimmy. Uh, you got a kiss from Jimmy <laughs> and that, that made it all worth it. I mean, well, speaking of like Jimmy's is trying is his damnedest in this man. Like he's, he's really mm, trying he to make it work, but, but, uh, but honest. And you know, and it's weird because this uh, script was written by uh, Lawrence Cohen, who also wrote De Palma's carry and wrote the it miniseries. And like, and for all the problems of the it miniseries, at least, you know, it worked in in its time. It maybe doesn't work as much now, but in its time it worked. And like Tommy Knockers never worked. It didn't work then. It doesn't work now. I so I just, I have to lay the blame on on the book. I just don't think the the book you know is very conducive without radically changing it. Like radically, radically changing it. I don't think the book is conducive to to an adaptation um, because the characters yeah, suck. And, and the, the, the wild thing is right. They um, James Wan is um, hoping to adapt the Tommy knockers again. So we, yes. they might actually make this thing again, which is wild to me. And I'm, I'm deeply curious because, you know, he's a director who's um, I would argue is incredibly good and knows what he's doing. And he must have something in mind where this will translate in a way where it's worth watching. I think there's a way to do it. I think that there's, I think it's a I, I like my version of it would be a dark comedy with sci-fi and horror right. elements, you know, but mm. almost almost like a Stepford Wives thing, you know, and you would have to work some social commentary into it with, you know, the the people as they're being taken over and you would have to uh, really go like over the top with the inventions that they come up with. Like I can imagine a version of this kind of working and also the last 10 minutes better be pretty fucking good. But it, it, like I can, I, I can see the the bones of it. You know how how you could maybe get away with it. But man, if I were James Wan and I had, you have to assume he's got the pick of the litter when it comes to Stephen King adaptations. This is a this is a really strange choice to take on. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I probably wouldn't attempt it. I'd, I'd probably move on to something else. <laughs> yeah, just quietly. Maybe, maybe that's the appeal of it, though, because unlike all these other stuff that have been made, either made well or you know whatever, they've had their baggage. 
with it. Maybe this is kind of the way like Favreau approached Iron Man, where he was like, this is great because it's not Spider-Man. It's not Captain America. You know, he he had freedom to make it his own. And, uh, you know, and he did. So maybe that's, you know, James Wan's thinking there. Or maybe he just sees it and maybe he read it at an impressionable age and just loves it. Like, I don't know. But uh, it's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a huge challenge to make this. Um, well, but if you're going to do it, I think you, you know, doing it in a, a tight, like you said, darkly comic, you know, you can really embrace the body horror of it, you know, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a nice darkly funny, super disturbing, tight, like 95 minute, you know, cut down, mm-hmm. just take the bare, the bare bones of, um, of the concept. You know, I think that's the only way the adaptation works. I, I do like that concept that, that is at the center of it all where, you know, the spaceship has been buried potentially for millions of years here. And, you know, aliens aren't visiting from afar. Like they've been here this whole time. I really like that concept and latching onto that. And that's something I remember really liking when I first watched the miniseries as a kid. I just found that, you know, magical, incredible that, that you know, they could have crashed here so long ago and been here the whole time. I really like that. Almost as magical as a kiss from Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> What if, what if, what if, I'm just going to throw this out there. What if getting a kiss from Jimmy when you're turning, like on your birthday, mm-hmm. curses you to no longer have a career in Hollywood? This it's is something that I will think next time I see him. I'll say, yes. do you think, did you feel a certain energy coursing through your veins after a kiss from Jimmy that could have changed the course of your life? <laughs> yes. Was it the film or was it the kiss? That's the question. It's a fair question. A reasonable question. Okay. <laughs> Sounds you like know. we're all losing our minds thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, that photo uh, is perhaps the best thing that came out of either the novel or the miniseries. And now we can we can finally share it with the public. Well, look, I wanted to bring something to the table because I know I wasn't bringing the best book or the best adaptation <laughs> to the table. But, you know, I'm from New Zealand. You know, I'm proud of what we do down here. Um, the fact is we did have something to do with the Tommy knockers. Um, and, uh, I could bring you a kiss from Jimmy. So I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as I did. Let me ask you this. What is, what is the general perception of the Tommy knockers from New Zealand now? Do people, no one, no one knows it was made here. No (laughs) one remembers it. And just when I knew I was going to be talking to you guys and coming on the Kingcast, I, I, you know, I brought up the Tommy knockers with quite a few people. And people, it's like people don't really know the book or the film, the, the miniseries, sorry. It's just like it doesn't exist in people's minds here. And that wow. says a lot. That's probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah. When you, you know, when you visit the place that was shot and you don't see a little plaque that commemorates the, um, the shoot or anything <laughs> like that. It's like we have raised it from the mat. Designated that <laughs> fake town a national park. <laughs> Which is funny because I've I've uh, visited small towns in New Zealand before. Uh, what's the one that that has the the hot springs in the North Island? Oh, Rotorua. Yeah, Rotorua. Rotorua. I visited Rotorua and I stayed at a motel that had a plaque on it. No shit. That essentially declared that nothing of importance happened on a date like 200 years ago in this spot. So you will put a plaque up for literally nothing happening, but uh, will not commemorate this uh, masterpiece of 
of a <laughs> televised miniseries. Oh no, we do. Uh, we network. we lay claim to things, and we're incredibly proud when we have overseas productions come in. So I mean, the Lord of the Rings is basically that kept us afloat, like the Lord of the Rings tours and all that sort of thing. But the Tommy Knockers is almost the opposite. It's like we kind of knew that was a bad thing, and we just pretend <laughs> it never happened. <laughs> The the New Zealand project that no one makes eye contact with at parties anymore. Yeah, so right. I look, on behalf of New Zealand, um, I apologize <laughs> for the Tommy Knockers miniseries. I'd just like to get that out there. All right. We'll accept we'll accept your apology. You know, we sent you we sent you Smiths. We uh, and, you Tracy, and, and Tracy and Tracy really did. You know. <laughs> thank you for that. And he we're, we're here to share yeah. the blame is is the point. You know, this was a a co-national effort, a coalition of the uh, reluctantly willing. Yeah. Also, man, do you want to plug anything? Does you have uh, anything coming up? Do you want to point people to or anything old Um, that people can watch while they're sitting? Um, I think I think Tickled, a documentary I made on Hulu. I think Dark Tourist is on Netflix. And uh, I'm just David Farrier on Twitter. That's pretty much it right now. I'm working on um, a new documentary at the moment, but that'll be out sometime. I uh, I highly recommend your investigative reporting to anyone that's listening. Um, please follow David on, on Twitter and, and keep up with what he does. He, he It's very funny stuff and also like super intriguing, fascinating stuff. Uh, yeah, I like deep diving into weird rabbit holes. So, um, yeah, um, I, I post those out on Twitter as I write them. So, yeah, I'm jealous of your job. On the, on the Kingcast, I'm sorry to bring you to such a low place, but I mate, from here on in, like it's all up, you guys. <laughs> and, um, I'm proud to have uh, brought you to the low spot. Well, it had to be done sooner or later. And that was our Tommy Knockers episode. Many thanks to David Ferrier for joining us. And, of course, for providing those incredible BTS photos. A Kiss for Jimmy will live on in infamy, I believe. Yes. And also all those pictures will be uh, rolling out via our, our Twitter page, which is, uh, you know, twitter.com backslash kingcast19. And you're going to want to see them, I think. You can only live with the imagination version of the awkward Jimmy Smith's uh, child kiss uh, yeah. for so long you you have to kind of exercise that from your imagination by seeing the actual photo i'm gonna go out on a limb and say the reality is worse but uh <laughs> we'll we'll see how um we'll see how folks enjoy that uh we were just sort of blindsided by it but you know certainly nothing so. untowards going on with mr smith's you know, we don't. Yes, I, I definitely want to underline that that we we don't yes. think that uh, he's a creep or anything. It's or just a very any, funny yes. Uh, photo. Yes, <laughs> we don't want we don't want a lawsuit, for instance. <laughs> but a real awkward photo, and once you see it, I think you'll agree. I think even Mister Smiths would agree with our uh, our reaction to that. So this is normally where we reveal the title for the next episode and then like kind of do a song and dance tease about who it's going to be. But this is an interesting uh, first for the podcast because we uh, have already uh, announced the guest for this episode. Weirdly, Uh, Scott, do you want to tell the people? Yes. uh, Next week's episode is maximum overdrive, the heavily requested maximum overdrive episode. And our guest on that one is um, Daniel danger. A uh, friend of ours, he's an artist, a uh, very accomplished artist, a very funny guy, big Maximum Overdrive fan, and 
this uh, this episode originally uh, went out as an early access episode through our Patreon account. That was a few weeks ago. So now the rest of the world is getting access to it. Feedback on this episode has been strong. And uh, my my big thing with the Maximum Overdrive episode is that you drop a, uh, a very big bombshell rumor into the center of the entire thing that uh, completely rewired my brain. And I'm hoping that uh, one of the people <laughs> at one of the various websites that's been uh, aggregating this show over the last couple months uh, takes note of it and writes it up. I really want to see this mystery solved. And uh, I think if we get the internet on it, we can probably wrap this fucker up and in a day or two get to the bottom of it. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have a little bit of a Charlie Day, uh, <laughs> always sunny uh, map of conspiracies surrounding this movie. Uh, but it, it's a very interesting rumor that I've heard. Uh, yeah. And I think that if you're anything like Scott, your your minds will be set ablaze by the possibility yes. of, of the... <laughs> possibly bullshit thing that I heard, but also very possibly true thing that I heard. You're going to want so badly for this rumor to be true. Um, and, and we hope that it is. Uh, but that's not all we're doing this week. We've also got an episode dropping on Friday, an exclusive interview that's going out also through our Patreon account. Eric, do you want to tell the people who, who we got and what we're talking about? Yeah, no, one of the things that we really wanted to do when we set up the Patreon was uh, branch out in ways that kind of break the format of the show, but also still embrace our love for King and our desire to know everything about various Stephen King adaptations. Uh, And one way to do that is to interview the makers and stars of Stephen King adaptations. And we got to kick that off with a a doozy. We have a Stephen Weber. Like a lot of people in the King world, he... You don't just make one one of these things, you know, unless you're Jack Nicholson, then you only do one. But everybody <laughs> else, you know, uh, will uh, uh, will do multiple projects. And and what, what was the final count on on his? Was it four? He was in four, four, four plus an audiobook. So it, it's a it, it's a rowdy interview. Stephen is a very funny guy. He's thankfully was very bored during the quarantine and was able to <laughs> to give us. Uh, I believe it's over an hour of of uh, yeah. deep dive. Literally, into- we literally set this shit up through Twitter just to just to offer you a peek behind the curtain on this show and uh, what kind of a tight ship we run here. Uh, Stephen Weber retweeted me the other day, and I responded and I said, "Hey, this is besides the point, but I run a Stephen King podcast, and if you ever want to come on the show and talk about it, let me know." And he followed me and DM me, and was just like, "Yeah, I'll do that." <laughs> it was like. Just that simple. He's got he's got some good stories to tell. He he does come at all the material with a clear eyed perspective, and um, it's really good. We're uh, we're scoring some really interesting guests for this, and uh, yeah, we're definitely hoping to make this a regular thing of interviewing people who have starred in uh, King adaptations. You know, with a specific focus on whatever they starred in and getting stories you know, from them directly. And uh, we have two great ones lined up. Stephen is the first out of the gate. He's this Friday. Um, and eventually those will make their way onto this feed as uh, bonus episodes. But we want to give uh, a little heads up to the people who are shelling out a few bucks to, you know, help us <laughs> keep the lights on while we're making this thing. We're, we're so thankful for the people that have signed up for the Patreon 
there there are exclusive things over there, like the commentaries and and uh, some of the bonus episodes. But stuff like this is probably going to go up as as early access material, and and you'll have it a few weeks before everyone else. Uh, we have some good stuff cooking over at Patreon. So if you haven't uh, subscribed yet, feel free to head on over. That's patreon.com slash the King cast. Correct. Well, I think that just about does it. This is a very long outro, but we had a whole bunch of stuff to tell you guys. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> a lot of material to get through. <laughs> so we'll see you next week for Maximum Overdrive. See y'all. See y'all.